I mean, I think it took a minutes to maybe get over the lie of it, but again, I think this is like not an, a terribly uncommon thing. I think with historical anecdotes that they are constructed to a certain level. In this case, I just happened to have the paper trail, and a lot of people that kind of ignored it. Hello, and welcome to the Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with poet Darby Bradford, author of the collection Bottom Rail on Top, a kind of archives-powered unmooring of American histories of antebellum Black life and emancipation. Darby stages the action of this collection in tandem with the matter of their own life, creating a poetic palimpsest of Black bodies and stories. Darby Minot Bradford, or DM Bradford, is a poet and translator based in Chochakke, in Montreal, Canada. Darby is the author of Dream of No One But Myself, which won the A.M. Klein Prize for Poetry, was longlisted for the Grand Prix de Louvre de Montreal, and was a finalist for the Griffin Poetry Prize, the Governor General's Literary Awards, and the Gerard Lampert Memorial Award. House Within a House by Nicholas Dawson, Darby's first translation, was published in 2023 by Brick Books. Darby, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to The Right Question. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, as I understand it, you have lived in Montreal your entire life yeah. or for most of your life. But this collection, Bottom Rail on Top, centers Canada only so far as you're the author of this collection. It's actually grounded historically elsewhere. So I want to start there. I'm wondering where your primal landscapes are or your landscapes of origin mm -hmm. and if they're different, what your chosen landscapes are. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like the book really begins in those kinds of questions of kind of complications of time and place and land, particularly as a black settler, you know, someone that didn't really grow up with a, an easy, ready-made, given relationship to nature, I'd say. So originally I got into the project thinking that I was maybe going to try to, yeah, write some kind of black pastoral poetry, try to come up with a poetics of nature that kind of included black bodies and then very quickly came upon this bottom rail on top phrase that kind of took me in a slightly different direction, but in a funny way, I feel like I still fulfilled that MO. Um, I mean, for, for my part, the kind of historical imaginary that dominated my life, and I think as a result gives this book its kind of landedness or its kind of chosen place, is very much a black American imaginary. So very much raised with um, certain ideas about what it means to be a good black American and with stories, you know, mainstream histories that definitely line up with that. So th this book became, and the bottom rail on top anecdote became this kind of like way into that history in a different way with maybe a couple more radical frames for myself. And then essentially trying to figure out what exactly is there, what the dominant narratives are, who's left out of those narratives, what things maybe need to be written back into it, what things need to be intervened on. Um, because ultimately, it's a really important one, but it's one also that has a lot of reifications of certain kinds of linear progress ideas around them. 
and also it's a very kind of like patrician masculinist story that thinks you know resistance leads to enlistment leads to some kind of freedom if you're if you're looking at the kind of emancipation and civil war frame that um, the bottom rail on top anecdote that i go into into the book revolves around let's have you read that first page yeah and then we can talk about how it became the topic of your research and the topic of this book and how it expanded. Of course. The story of the escaped slave who joins the Union Army, encounters his master, and says, quote, Howdy, master. Bottom rail on top this time, unquote. Is such a lovely end. More coming. I'm working now. Which is from Ta-Nehisi Coates, The Atlantic, 2009. Just a little stub on the website. Leads to, in 1865, a black soldier who recognized his former master among a group of Confederate prisoners he was guarding called out a greeting, hello, master, bottom rail on top this time. Would this new arrangement of rails last? That's James M. McPherson, Battle Cry of Freedom, 1988 which leads to recognizing his former master among the prisoners he was guarding, a black soldier greeted him effusively. Hello, Massa. Bottom rail on top this time. Which is Leon F. Litvak, been in the storm so long, 1979. Which ultimately leads to um, Litvak's source on the matter. The command was sent as prisoners to Ship Island, which is nothing but a bleak sandbar without any shade or shelter upon it of any kind, and kept there in the hot sun, guarded in a very brutal manner by Negroes for 20 days. One of the Negroes who ordered the boys about and guarded them often accosted them with the expression or something similar, who be you rebels now? Bottom rail on top this time, sure. Which is from Ephraim McDowell Anderson's Memoirs Historical and Personal, 1868. Anderson was a corporal in the Missouri Army on the Confederate side, just for a little bit of context, which leads to both nothing and kind of this intervention, yeah, you know, on the idea of various stories that we tell that kind of have their own emotional life and their own bent on the truth, and it ultimately serves certain groups and certain versions of history in a particular way. That seems like a, a really ripe place for investigation. Yes. But I'm wondering how you came to this story in the first place, yeah. and then how it kind of made your project expand and sprout different wings, as it were. Absolutely. So I came to it, I think, the way most people come to it nowadays, which speaks to the kind of like reification and the kind of fableness of the story that now exists, which is through um, Ken Burns's uh, The Civil War. Um, <laughs> and I was kind of fascinated by the story when I first came across it, probably in my late teens, I'd say I was probably 17 or 18. And it was just such a perfect story. He frames it just the way that McPherson and Litvak essentially frame it. This formerly enslaved man, now part of the Union Army, comes across his former enslaver, now a member of the Confederate Army, now in shackles on the battlefield. And there's this kind of reversal of hierarchies that the phrase historically always points to, except in the Litvak, McPherson, and ultimately Ken Burns frame, it's a story of progress and emancipation. It's this funny frame where the, the formerly enslaved man can almost joke about it, right? There's a piety to it. There's a kind of warmth to it in a funny way. 
And yeah, quickly found out without much work, right? Just by chasing the footnotes that it was like, oh no, it's a very different story. Um, I mean, I think it took a minute to maybe get over the lie of it. But again, I think this is like not an, a terribly uncommon thing, I think, with historical anecdotes that they are constructed to a certain level. In this case, I just happened to have the paper trail. And I think that's ultimately what I got interested in was this way that things get lossy, this way that they get refigured. I got interested in this idea that I think ultimately Lidvac saw that anecdote and it's very much levied as pretty much every other kind of anecdote I've heard or piece of writing I've read where the bottom row on top phrase appears, which is it's a story of a hierarchy, not just reversed, but gone rickety, gone wrong. So it's very much a you give them an inch, they take a foot kind of story. And it's very much a slavery good, emancipation bad story. And then Lidvag does this curious thing of turning around and essentially trying to make a more positive story out of it that's in some ways completely different. In some ways, you can kind of make an argument that it aligns. But I think in both cases, and this is kind of where the project, I think, starts to break open for me, Lidvak tries to do this kind of reparative gesture with writing up his own story that is more positive from his perspective and surely from mine also, ultimately. But in both cases, the, the Ephraim Anderson case, the Leon Litvak case, it ventriloquizes black bodies for this kind of funny historical turn into a, essentially try to serve a particular idea of what that whole moment in American history meant. In both cases, no black person ever said this. And if you look online on Reddit, you know, there are people that point to this anecdote as like the origin story of the phrase when it's not. There are earlier examples of it in the record on the one hand. And on the other, these are made up stories. A, a black man never said this thing in either case, as far as I can tell. It, the words were put in their mouths. And to what ends? And then that's kind of where the idea of not just how these histories are mediated in the present, but particularly how they're mediated by black people trying to make sense of their history. Um, I, I started kind of working my way back from that faded moment on the battlefield, you know, this, this fictional ultimately story of the formerly enslaved man and his enslaver, and then working my way back to, you know, all the way to the plantation, you know, here's the plantation, here's what those conditions are like, here's what subjection is like of all kinds, here's a little bit of the history of resistance, here's a little bit of how that led into the whole kind of contraband frame that was kind of a big part of the Civil War, the way that Benjamin Butler, who was like a famous war strategists came up with this idea of like, oh, well, when you come upon these populations of enslaved people, maybe we could declare them not so much free, but contraband, so that we can prevent them from essentially ending back up in that situation. But ultimately, they end up in another kind of curtailed situation that doesn't exactly amount to freedom. And then I make my way to emancipation, black enlistment in the military, and then suddenly we're in this special magical moment that Ken Burns and a lot of people have relied on to be like, aha, progress is achieved kind of moment in that kind of, yeah, emancipation via militarization frame that I think a lot of people are attached to, both black people and historians and governments and all kinds of folks. I'm going to quote a poet outside of this book, and I'll bring it back to your book, I promise. But the poet Catherine Nuremberger has written of work by the poets Monica Sock and Rick Barrett that their work, quote, treats research as a lyric act. 
learning through feeling and feeling through learning. And I'm wondering, Darby, how that idea resonates with you and resonates in this particular collection. Yeah, that's a really interesting quote. I think, to me, it's kind of a phenomenology of an epistemology, right? It's kind of like, well, how do we decide what's true? And then trying to put myself through the throes of figuring out some of the pieces and better understanding that history for myself, but then also ultimately very interested in documenting the experience of going through those motions, right? So I think that I really wanted to try to not just capture my experience, but lay down, I guess, a particular kind of form and maybe a coordination of different forms that would invite a reader into that kind of experience and and essentially make them rifle through, hopefully, some of the research that I went through with these little kind of like notational glosses that are like little bits of the research that they can then kind of search online and and then they can they can do what I did, which is find all kinds of stuff that didn't make it into the book and find kind of the extent of the matter a little bit more and then kind of come back to the page and kind of see where the dovetails are a little bit in all these different anecdotes that I've fit together. But really, no, yeah, I, I wanted to communicate that kind of affective space of flitting around from one piece of documentation to the other, one realization to the other, and trying to make sense of it, both just in terms of my own personal relationship to that um, history, but also make sense of it on the page, make sense of it in this lyrical way where I'm, I'm really fitting a lot of anecdotes together sometimes on a single page, you know. You've got the page, you have a small not a poem mm-hmm. at the top of the page. You have a significant white space and then you have citations at the bottom and then you have a bibliography at the end of the book as well. And so I'm wondering where that impulse came from to hinge an entire collection on paratext, basically. Mm-hmm. There's a funny history of historical let's say, literature or historical poetry, definitely in particular, where it can be kind of drab and kind of boring and tries to fit the citational practice or the kind of scholastic side of the exercise inside of the poetry. And that can really weigh things down. For me, the act of making sense of it on the page and for myself came first. So those not a poem fragments that ultimately accumulate into these sequences, into this kind of sequence of sequences, those came first. And um, and I started pulling little quotes that I thought had a particular yeah emotional load, I guess, in a certain sense, and allowed another thinker's register onto the page also in such a way that you got their experience. You didn't just get mine, right? I'm, I'm kind of just this little part of a much bigger conversation of, I think, these kind of intertextual relationships where um, lots of people are trying to figure things out for themselves and then kind of bring them to a bunch of other people. Um, so that's kind of where they came. It was really like, let me create a way in. Um, and that was kind of the first gesture in the book that kind of pushed in that direction in a major way, I think. You're listening to a conversation with poet D.M. Bradford, author of Bottom Rail on Top. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Elk River Books in Livingston, Montana, offering new, used, and rare books and frequent author readings in their lineup of events offered each season. A full calendar of events and online shopping can be found at elkriverbooks.com when your project is based on a lie, yeah. then how do you approach historical documents and context without that same level of skepticism or cynicism? 
Sure. There's these echoes and contrasts of the present that mediates all this history for me, right? This place that I'm, I find myself situated in and, and the time that I find myself situated in. The way that that looks back on not so much the past, but on an abstraction of the past. I think we also have to understand that we're not directly connected to it, that there's just an unbridgeable gap there in a certain sense. Mm. And so where the trust comes in is that, that I have to trust that I'm experiencing history and not the past, right? And I mean as a discipline. The things that people have decided to put in a box and keep safe. I'm experiencing the things that they've decided to leave out of the box and then somehow find their way back. I have a whole sequence about... Harriet Jacobs and this crawl space that she found herself in, the ways that people have begun to write about that in a bunch of different ways. But it's interesting to remember that the Harriet Jacobs slave narrative was lost for, you know, the better part of a hundred years until a scholar unearthed it again in the 1970s, right? This had fallen out of importance in a major way, and it took scholarship and a different kind of historical lens to bring it back into focus. Frankly, it probably took the emancipation of an interest in black history in a more particularized way with kind of the growth of the black studies model and university settings for that to be scholarship that anyone would value in the first place, right? Really, I think that's where the trust was for me or where I had to ground myself in that sense. And and there becomes this kind of whole um, intervention on my part, but also on the part of all these other thinkers on, yeah, the idea of mediation, the idea of misrepresentation, the idea of um, the choices that people that are thinking that they're doing the work of history and of the historical record, but ultimately are making lots of decisions along the way that um, make it a little bit more complicated than that. So that, in a sense, that's the primary thing that I'm experiencing and intervening on thinking about along the way. Yeah. Are you willing to read either part of or the entirety of that loophole section sure. for our listeners? That is the section that speaks most directly to the Harriet Jacobs story that you just mentioned. Yes. Not a poem, but if we think of the quote-unquote flesh as a primitive narrative, H. Spillers. Not a poem, but that's it, honey, F. Gage, 1863. Despite my fantasies of flight, F. Wilderson, between a hawk and a buzzard, M. Robinson, 1851. Not a poem, but seared, divided, ripped apartness, riveted to, spillers again. An in-between location, M. A. Green, Bartit. Not a poem, but an O. Christian Mothers, 1853. My own way to obtain it, 155. Not a poem, but neither the brain or talent to write it. It put a lucky thought into my head. Not a poem, but as good as comedy to me. Not a poem, but made to render them a service, defeat the object that I wish to pursue. Not a poem, but Mount Auburn Cemetery, Cambridge, Mass, where no eye but gods could see me. Not a poem, but what made me think it was you. And the omission of one or two passages, the editor. Not a poem, but an assurance of repetition, J.A. Sneed, whispered through a crack. Not a poem, but territory that defies all laws. She has not told the half. Not a poem, but alive still. Not a poem, but don't get lost. Pled and poured over ain't eyes as the hold 
and still. Not a poem, but Garrett the breastwork, sojourn the bulwarks, gin a cotton fatherland's prying in and still. Not a poem, but Harriet writing about Linda in the shed's crawl space, listening for her kids. Not a poem, but who writing her seven years, sewed by shingle light, one hole by gimlet, two little faces floating in. Not a poem, but cunning versus cunning. Not a poem, but notes for the flinting nook scrawled in reps. Not a poem, but patient in tribulation, fervent in spirit. Not a poem, but serving the Lord, none but the one writ fatherland's croak out on Martha's attic. Not a poem, but till the cut breaks, wrote with a prayer led out of the darkness, wrote faint of body, strong of purpose. Not a poem, but to write at last, past the old place one last time, by boat, the breeze, and the sunshine, north by fatherland's ten days and ten nights. Not a poem, but the problem of proneness. Not the aftermath of her proneness, of Harriet's forever messed up body carrying those cramped years of hiding in the family garret, hiding from doctor enslavement. Not the problem of its likeliness either, of Harriet Beecher Stowe, for one, who wouldn't believe any of her story at first, and asked her northerly employer, of all people, to confirm it, the story she wasn't liable to start writing till her grandmother Molly, her story's Aunt Martha, passed back in Everton. But I mean the problem of the story some of us have tried to figure that crawlspace is. The scrawl in her head, the desperate quiet to keep up the whatevers between them. The whole while not just bearing fruit and subterfuge one letter at a time. Not just the mess of covert exercises taking her frame to the future in a little sail ship headed north back together, planning forever, dear readership. Not just prone as I am writing this. Not just the irony of writing her mouth shut. Not just the telling fact of that other Harriet's refusal to write the books forward but the lot of those inclined to imagine her years in hiding as prone as Winslow Homer's The Gulf Stream maroon, her toes tucked up on a drifting bit of boatwood, sharks circling as thick as the water, before they imagine her after prone as Carrie James Marshall's Gulf Stream weekender sailors, given to leisure almost whimsical, loaded and well when she's really only as prone as if she's at once the maroon and the sailors, and she's also Marshall and Homer, and she's also more work to come. She's also the sun coming up. She's also watching it come up, writes it down on free soil. I'm unsure how she enjoys the work, but the work gets done. Thank you. I loved hearing that read aloud. In Harriet's story, the source text is coming directly from her. She is claiming or, or taking control of her own narrative, whereas Bottom Rail on Top, that story was not a story originated from, you know, the person's hand, if it existed or happened at all. Yeah. Will you talk about agency as you've considered it in this text, in this section, certainly, but throughout the entire collection? Yeah, to speak specifically to the section, I think it becomes a bit of a heart 
of the book's intervention on the historical, as I hope the at least the prose piece kind of illustrated, but also this kind of focus on writing right throughout the poetic sequence, kind of attempts to hammer home. We leave out of the picture the fact that everything we know about that crawl space, we know through her own words, that she's got a lot of agency in, A, preparing that for a particular kind of audience that she had in mind, largely an abolitionist or potentially abolitionist audience, but also that she's involved in the same complicated writerly and philosophical maneuvers that any person attempting to make sense of their own past and their own traumatic experiences are. And that's a sense of agency that I think lets, like, gets left out of the frame a lot if you're just focusing on, I think, a very important and interesting kind of like, yeah, scrawl space, philosophical, like, danger zone that she finds herself in. But also, um, if you're just focused on, like, this extreme decision that she made for herself to essentially attempt to keep herself safe. And I think it, it points to this broader concern I have with the way we approach the history of these people that went through some really complicated things. And I mean, complicated in a, in a kind of social death sense, the sense of not being a person and according to the systems that they found themselves in. And then of course, still being a person despite that and having to affirm that for themselves. I don't think from the present that I can fully understand what that would be like. I think that there are echoes of the kinds of um, subjections and like systemic underpinnings, let's say that, they experience that obviously linger in like modern North American society. Sure. However, there's also a significant contrast between my experience and theirs also, right? We, we find ourselves very much at the like luckier tail end of the supply chain in the global scheme of things. So I think I wanted to balance all that, the connected parts, the contrasting parts together and to really lay some respect, I think on these complicated experiences, maneuvers, forms of resistance that these people were engaged in, that they had agency in what they did too, that they made choices, that they were people just like you and I are people, and that they weren't just kind of like a monolithic mass. And I, I think lots of people know this. I don't think any of the other thinkers that I bring up, especially in a kind of like black radical frame, don't think about it that way on some level. But I think I really wanted to put some rhetoric to that in a particular way. And then I'm wondering then or so I'm wondering then, about the phrase that begins most of the pages in this mm -hmm. book. And that's not a poem. And as someone who herself has interrogated the definitions of and boundaries of genre, I'm curious about mm -hmm. what you mean by placing this phrase, not a poem, not only on pages within a quote-unquote poetry collection, but against the land and mm -hmm. the bodies and the histories that you have here. What does it mean by calling something or negating the definition yeah. of poetry in that way? I'm curious about your thinking about that. I mean, the not a poem, an Afra repetitive phrase was there from the beginning. I was thinking about that performative aspect of making an artwork from these stories and the ways that as artists, we're trained to lean into that and to lean into that as a kind of solution and a way of interacting with all kinds of stories, difficult, not difficult, etc. And I think I wanted to kind of make that impulse a little bit more visible in that kind of not a poem that says, okay, some stories maybe are not for me to reap the benefits of. They're not necessarily for me to accumulate cultural capital with. And then I wanted to show this kind of but, right? Like this not a poem, but this kind of like, well, then you lean into it anyways, because you kind of can't help yourself, right? This is 
this is, I think, where that problem of the modern frame looking back, I think, enters on every page, right? It is really to be like, no, I kind of can't help myself. So I need to problematize something else if I'm actually to do the intervention because the intervention is kind of, um, I can't resist it in a certain sense. That was poet DM or Darby Bradford, author of Bottom Rail on Top, out now from Brick Books. Look for more information about Darby at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Jake Birch and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Aiden McMahon engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening.